Greetings. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Brianne Fallon, and he's... Dave McConaughey. And it's so nice to speak to you again, Brie. We we won't pretend with our listeners that, that I'm speaking to you while you're in Jerusalem, but I'm guessing that halfway through, or even more than halfway through your, your trip in Jerusalem, in the future, future Brie is doing really quite well. Yeah, I'm sure future Brie is having a really good time. And in two days, future Brie will be going to Tel Aviv, which future Brie is very excited about. It's, it's really excellent. Speaking of excellent... This week, we have an excellent podcast by the wonderful Dave McConaughey. And hey, you interviewed, yeah, that's you. And <laughs> you introduced, uh, you interviewed rather, um, Bradley Onishi on the sacrality of the secular and philosophy of religion. And there really is nothing left to say, then take it away. Welcome. My name is David McConaughey, and today I'm joined by Dr. Bradley Onishi, Associate Professor of Religion at Skidmore College in New York. He's also the co-author of Christian Mysticism, An Introduction to Contemporary Theoretical Approaches, the author of The Sacrality of the Secular, a major work about the philosophy of religion, and he co-hosts with Dan Miller the great podcast Straight White American Jesus. Thanks for being here with us today, Brad. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to start <laughs> right in on your most recent book, The Sacrality of the Secular, because I was so taken um, by the force of the analysis of the philosophy of religion and its relationship to religious studies. You you start, as I think a lot of us do, um, with Max Weber and uh, Sciences of Vocation uh, for how we think about um, the secularization thesis, you know, that idea that greater rationalism will end religion's appeal. Um, that is a really persistent idea. We might call it a meme or viral today. We, we just can't seem to shake uh, rationalism um, as the source of somehow disenchanted modern world. Mm -hmm. can, can you speak about how you think about secularity and, and the secular that rejects that kind of narrative of rationalism and disenchantment? Because I think your book really starts with that um, that powerful move right at the the opening. So how do you talk uh, about secularity today? Yeah, that's right. I, one of the main through lines in the book is that it is uh, possible to hold an enchanted secularity. Uh, this would mean that even if you identify as secular, um, even if your world is uh, demagicked, so to speak, uh, it's not demystified. And, and so what that means is that the binary uh, that Weber and others would, would posit the binary that puts religion and enchantment on one side, secularity and disenchantment on the other, uh, no longer holds. You know, my hope is that one of the hopes I, I had when I wrote the book is that just as social scientists have done amazing work to deconstruct and complexify our understandings of secularism, that we might do the same philosophically and that, that those, those kinds of analyses would go hand in hand. Um, mm. And so, um, you know, I can go into the details of why I think it's possible to hold um, an enchanted secularity. I get that that term from Jeff Kosky's book, Arts of Wonder. Um, you know, but basically since Weber, since the 100, 100 years since Weber's address, um, everything from quantum physics to advances in uh, complex systems and biology. I mean, there's there's so many examples have shown us that. Uh, features like uncertainty and unpredictability 
are part of the world. And so if even if you identify as a secular person, um, the kinds of mystery that Weber would put on the religious side are part of your worldview. And that means it is possible to hold uh, an enchanted secularity. Right. You talk about it in a a really interesting way, and perhaps for those that are a little bit more familiar with philosophy of religion and some of these dialogues, it will be self-evident, but but I don't know that that's everyone who's listening to the podcast (laughs) today. So so part of that really has to do with with the kind of subject, the kind of person that we are in the world, the liberal subject that that Weber is talking about, and the and the way in which that that subject is is limited by rationality, right? When you add rationality, you lose the mystical stuff that makes life worth living, and and that there are real consequences from your perspective um, to that move. Do I have that right? Is that is that on track? (laughs) You know, one one of the things that I wanted to to try to demonstrate was that uh, Weber's analysis and much of the the secularization thesis rests on the idea, right, which is now an outdated philosophical idea that uh, human beings are discrete rational subjects. You know, when when uh, one starts in a humanities program in grad school, in the first year, they're going to read Foucault, they're going to read, um, you know, other uh, thinkers and analysts who are going to show them that this idea that we are discrete rational uh, subjects is just a fantasy. Well, if that's a fantasy, then what are some of the next steps that we can extrapolate? One of them is this, is that much philosophical work over the last half century has shown us that the rational subject was meant to be an inversion of the all-knowing God, right? That the rational subject was meant to replace um, the the divine and and take the the sort of throne as the all-knowing, all-encompassing, powerful creature. Well, inversion is not subversion. And so when you invert... Um, the sort of theistic uh, framework, um, and you replace the all-knowing God with the all-knowing uh, rational subject, you don't disrupt the system, right? You don't disrupt or subvert the, the, the framework that put that God in place to begin with. Uh, what I try to do in the book is say, when you sort of recognize that the rationalism of Weber and others is outdated, you you recognize very quickly that What's also outdated is their understanding of the binary between the secular and the religious. And so just as we need to rethink the rational subject, we need to re- we need to rethink that that border between what we think of as as the secular and the religious. Right. And and so in the long history of, you know, 100, 125 years of people really kind of engaging with these concepts, you describe that there's a divide between um, two things, and I want to get the language exactly right here, uh, continental philosophical theology and continental philosophy of religion. What's the difference between these two, or say, um, uh, Charles Taylor and John Caputo? You know, one of the the audiences I'm addressing in the book uh, are a large swath of folks in the academic study of religion who believe that philosophy, uh, uh, excuse me, that philosophy of religion is nothing but a code word for like crypto theology, right? So if you meet a philosophy of religion, philosopher of religion at a conference or at the AAR, uh, you know that that's a code word for somebody who's really doing theology 
but they're trying to hang out in a department of religious studies or in, uh, in this uh, academic study of religion. Uh, a lot of folks find that philosophy seems kind of useless for, for religious studies in the 21st century. Um, one of my counters to that is that um, there is a difference between philosophical theology and philosophy of religion. Um, and sometimes the lines get blurred and sometimes the lines get sort of a little bit messy, but it's at least worth it to kind of outline from the beginning the different positionality of the two. And so for my money, philosophical theology is trying to affirm or defend or legitimate right a religious tradition, in this case, a Christian tradition of some kind. For me, uh, as a philosopher of religion who works in religious studies, uh, philosophy of religion is about uh, thinking with or philosophizing with rather than for or against religions. And what I mean by that is I take very seriously the idea that religions are not only for me uh, a side of analysis, but they are a philosophical resource that when I engage uh, in encounters with religious texts and communities and actors, that they enable me to expand my understanding, to expand my normative assumptions regarding selfhood, the world, and so on. Right. So, so you call this and to philosophize with with religion rather than against it or or for it. I, I really like that that formulation because it it, it gives me the sense that philosophy has a, a clear utility that it's a that it's a tool right that it has you know and, and as a hammer sees a nail right like the tool of philosophy on religion can do certain kinds of things for us so w- what do you think are some of the benefits of um, philosophizing with religion for folks that are in religious studies that may not be philosophers of religion yeah. You know, for me, the main benefit comes in the classroom. You know, one of the things I've, I've said to colleagues over the, the last few months here is that if philosophy of religion is dead, if it, it's no longer viable in the academic study of religion, then somebody forgot to tell my students. Um, because <laughs> every time I offer a class on race and religion or death and dying, every time I offer a class on the meaning of life, um, we practice the virtues of patience and empathy. We, we try our best to enter into the worlds um, and the texts and the practices and the rituals of the people we're studying. However, when we do that, my students um, want to ask further questions. They want to think with religions and ask what those encounters that we've just staged mean for them. How can studying the burial rites of the Tanatarajans in Sulawesi, Indonesia, help them reflect on sort of problems in our healthcare system, right? Mm. Um, And so that kind of move from encounter to uh, reevaluation of normative assumptions about the world, to me, is a feature of religious studies. I mean, I know that uh, many folks are going to say, look, there's no reason to bring in Derrida or uh, Levinas into many undergraduate um, classes. And I wholeheartedly agree. But I also know that those same folks will agree with me that people like Robert Orsi and Saba Mahmoud have done this very kind of work, that they have reflected on what their uh, encounters with religious subjects have meant for their own understandings of themselves and the world. And so for me, that is a a clear and direct benefit, that when we introduce people to the study of religion, we're giving them the tools 
to reflect critically on who they are in the world. Uh, I tell people all the time, my goal is, is rarely to clone myself. Um, if I have 20 students in a class, I don't want to make 20 more religion scholars. I want to sort of leave that class hoping that I've contributed to future scientists, CEOs, teachers, volunteers, city council members, mayors, nurses, uh, having the sort of intellectual capacity to uh, approach the most important aspects of life uh, in ways that they couldn't before, in ways that honor the, the absolute nuance and uh, difficulty of the human condition. Uh, and so for me, that's, that's it. Even when I'm not teaching, you know, a, a, a philosophical text per se, I always feel like I'm bringing that perspective into my class. I, I appreciate the, the kind of nod to, to especially Orsi here was one of the people that I was thinking about that was really kind of like working through what it means to be in a religious tradition and then try to kind of narrate the particularity of that, of that experience. And then to really dwell on what that particularity can say to someone that doesn't yeah. share that orientation that do, do you think of that as, as translation, as, as a kind of dislocating of people that allows them to kind of, um, lose those normativities as, as you were, as you were suggesting for you, how do you think about that kind of pedagogical move that you're doing? You know, one of the, one of the, um, ways that I, I explain, uh, how this works is that sometimes in order to teach, uh, geometrical scale, um, elementary school teachers will teach artistic perspective, right? Mm. That if a student can understand perspective in art, that they might have a better chance at understanding, uh, geometrical scale. Um, now, uh, does that mean that math and math is converted to art in that scenario? Does that mean that art is converted to math? It doesn't mean either of those things. It means that there's an analogous logic uh, between the two. There's a touch point that helps uh, someone gain a vision or perspective that they were having trouble or maybe could not have um, taken on before. And that's kind of how I understand that the dislocation you speak of. Um, I understand it as providing us an expansion um, mm -hmm. of our vision in a way that's really critical. To me, that's, that's, uh, that's the greatest contribution that religious studies has uh, for our students. And that's something that I think uh, philosophy of religion can bring to the table. You, you also um, say at the, at the very, very end of, of your book, which you know, has dealt with Heidegger and George Bataille and Jean-Luc Marion and uh, Thomas Carlson and, and, and thinkers for whom it, it can be a real challenge to kind of make it through these, these serious yeah. <laughs> philosophy of religion texts. So, so I, I'm very, I'm very relieved, for instance, that, you know, we're not walking every, into every undergraduate classroom and slapping down, you know, a translation of being in time. And yeah, being like, yes. Yeah. All right. Here's, here's our, <laughs> here's, here's our work. Although, although it, to, to be honest with our audience, that's exactly what you and I did in, in, gra in graduate school together. It um, is. Uh, but you present a, a very particular kind of problem at the end of the book. And, the, and that problem is that, Apart from maybe Saba Mahmoud and and Bob Orsi and and a handful of others, there is a a, a a persistence of this dialogue in exclusion to Christianity. Right that that people that that are philosophers of religion are so tied to the Christian orientation of philosophy of religion, and and I'm interested to hear um, your thoughts on whether there's 
maybe any interreligious philosophy of religion that's really kind of emerging, you you call for greater diversity and greater uh, uh, um, perspectives uh, from who we're talking to and from what positions we're we're speaking from. Um, and I wonder for the, for those of us that that are that are welcoming of that kind of um, comparative and and interreligious dialogue, um, how that that kind of might might fit into um, your ideas about secularity. Yeah, I, this is a persistent problem in the academy. It's in a particular problem in philosophy. I think what you're seeing in philosophy departments around the country are people reckoning with uh, the homogeneity of their uh, resources, their texts, their canon, and their personnel. Um, one of the things we need to do, just to put it simply, is we need to decolonize philosophy, and we need to decolonize philosophy of religion. Um, I just edited a, a volume for the Journal of Cultural and Religious Theory, and we, there's a great essay there, if anyone wants to check it out, by Patrice Haynes, who works at Liverpool Hope University uh, in the UK. And she does a great job of not only describing how we might go about decolonizing philosophy of religion, but then puts that into practice in actual field work that she's done. And so um, we need to continue that. And I would go so far to say that the kind of future of uh, philosophy of religion and maybe the future of philosophy, I'm not sure, depends on that project, that if that can't happen, um, that we are going to see a kind of uh, passing by of this subdiscipline um, as the rest of the academy progresses. Do you think that there's there's a sense that the that the kind of impenetrability of the kind of I don't want to call it a house of cards, but of the layering of all of these dialogues, right? That that if you're going to read Heidegger, you have to read Kant, and if mm-hmm. you're going to read yep. if you're going to read Heidegger, then you need to read you know Levinas, right? And if you're going to read um, uh, Bataille, then then you have to like that every person you read is in this larger narrative, but those narratives are so challenging yeah. at this point that, that part of a decolonial deconstruction is the, the freedom to say, yeah, I know that a long time for a long time, the canon was based on these white dudes and now it should not be. And it's okay to maybe not talk about them at every moment that you know it, it they could arise because it perhaps that's all the moments right now in philosophy of religion yeah. um is that is that is that available as well as a move uh, to those that are thinking about this i think it needs to be and i think this is why uh, you know in in response to one of your previous questions i went right to teaching is you know what teaching has shown me is that uh, what we have to offer as scholars of religion but what i have to offer as philosopher of religion is not is not necessarily recounting the layers and layers of, you know, of the history of philosophy as you just sort of reference them. That is not what is compelling to my students. Um, what is compelling to my students is not only investigating religions, but then asking what our investigations might mean for our conceptions of love and death and sex and mortality and birth uh, and community and all those things. And so um, that's what I mean when I say we need to do a better job of philosophizing with religions rather than philosophizing about religions. If if philosophers of religion want to say to the rest of their colleagues in the Academy of, uh, you know, the, the American Academy of Religion that our function is really to, you know, uh, sort of 
examine all the the religious data we can and come up with the best def, comparative definition of religion possible, I think most people are going to say, you know, in fact, we're good. We don't really need that. Uh, we're not concerned with that. And you guys can go maybe do that on your own or just not do it at all. Um, but if we make a different case, if we say that this is not about tracing layers of philosophical uh, narratives, nor is it about sort of pretending that we are the truth evaluators who will, uh, you know, help all scholars of religion understand the category of religion. If we say, no, we're the ones who are going to, like everyone else here, in some way investigate religions critically, whether that's a sacred text, whether that's a community, whether that is um, a, a, a history. And then, though, we're going to add a second step, right? We're going we're gonna to sort of make that step that Orsi and Mahmoud, as well as the others that I mentioned in my book, make, which is to say we're going to reflect on what this means for our normative assumptions. If we make that move, I think we can have a greater level of accessibility, not only for more scholars who are interested in this kind of work, but especially for our students, especially for the 19-year-old um, who's walking into the class, hoping to find something compelling um, when they take their maybe first and only religious studies course. Right. I really like the way that you put it in this one section of your book. I, I pulled the quote because I because I thought it was uh, really good. You thought it was good, too. You italicized it. <laughs> the, the, uh, these are the secularist assumptions often applied to philosophy of religion, that if one learns from religion, then one's thought is illegitimate in the modern university, right? That, that there's this sense that we can't learn from, from the traditions that we study, right? That, that somehow that's forbidden. Now we can, we can critically appraise them. We can, um, try to explain why they do something, but then if it provides something to us, right, as a person who's in that classroom, as a, as a student in the university, that somehow we have, um, delegitimized the, the religious studies work that we're doing. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. This is a tricky, this is a tricky process. Uh, we have to, we have to engage in the most rigorous scholarship we can. However we are investigating religions, uh, we have to do that with rigor. Historically, sociologically, um, you know, critical textual studies, whatever it may be. That, is, that, that goes without saying. Um, however, I don't think that that precludes what you just said, which is um, learning from and reflecting, reflecting upon our own normative assumptions as a result of that study. I don't think those two are um, mutually exclusive. And I think what it does for me is it, it means that philosophy of religion is always bicameral. Like it, it always has two, there's always a two-step process and it's always bifocal, right? That we have to have the rigor to be scholars of religion who investigate religions, but we also have to have the philosophical uh, capaciousness to, to um, draw back from those encounters and reflect upon uh, our, our own positionality in the world and the, the kind of guiding beliefs we have about it. If if I can, there's there's one one takeaway phrase that that I'd really like to offer to our listeners here, um, and and that's non secularist secularities. You spend a lot of time um, in your work talking about the ways in which um, religion projects secularity. Uh, almost as much as we can imagine that there is some secular person out there who identifies as secular, who is then creating the secular, right? That that's not how the process works. Can you, um, can you give us uh, a kind of glimpse of how a non-secularist secularity, how that works and what, what that is like as a tool that we can then um, 
take to our own uh, areas? So if we go back to the, to the Weber that you mentioned at the, the very beginning of our conversation, the binary there is that the religious person lives in a mystical or myst, myst, uh, mystified world and that they are therefore enchanted, right? The secular person supposedly lives in a demystified world, in a disenchanted world. What this does is, is it sets up two, uh, two opposite or two sides of a binary where the goal is to vanquish the other. And so the assumption is, is that if you are a secular person, then you must be a secularist, that your goal is to uh, delegitimize uh, religion in all forms. Uh, I've said this many times. There are atheist fundamentalists just as there are religious fundamentalists. Many of your listeners will not be surprised to hear that, that the new atheists are fundamentalists along the lines as many of the evangelicals I talk about on my podcast. A non-secularist secularity recognizes that even for the secular person, even for the person who identifies as non-religious and professes no belief or adherence to supernatural deities or forces or whatever it may be, that their world is marked by uncertainty. It is marked by unpredictability. It is marked by unknowability, by the very fabric of the world itself. And if that's true, then what I'm offering in my model is not uh, a way to convert religion to the secular worldview or vice versa. I, I'm not trying to make some sort of easy collapse of these uh, of, of these things. But what I do want to say is, if there's a sort of um, apophaticism, if there's an unknowing dimension to both the secular and the religious person's worldview, then maybe there are points of resonance, maybe there are points of comparison, maybe there are points of dialogue that have been overlooked uh, and sort of hidden because we've, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, continued to adhere to the religious secular binary that goes back to Weber and sort of continues um, into many uh, iterations of the secularization thesis. Right. So, so in that sense, by really looking carefully at the construction of the secular, it, it brings you back to it in a way that's, that's free of being exclusive of religious stuff, right? There, that there are um, religious persons who have to engage, right? With the secular world. They can't avoid the public square. They can't avoid, you know, voting, right? And, and that those people uh, have orientations in the world that um, are, are not captured, Right. When when we when we create two boxes and you say you can only be in this one or you can only be in that one and there's nobody in the middle and there's no crossing from one to the other. Right. And that there's very little dialogue between them. And it, it also changes my position as a scholar, because when I go into my investigations of religions, um, instead of assuming that I am, again, that rational subject who's going there to shed uh, you know, illuminate to illuminate the dark spaces of the mysterious, you know, hidden corners of religion, right? Instead of thinking of myself as the rational knower who will sort of explain to the world how everything works, um, I'm going to do my best to critically engage religions analytically and critically. Uh, I want to produce scholarship that somehow advances a conversation uh, regarding uh, whatever it is I'm studying. But my position as a scholar is then to say, oh, maybe the points of unknowability or uncertainty, maybe the points of faith that I found in those traditions are somehow resonant with my own worldview, even if I sort of consider myself to be a secular person. Um, you know, one of the things I, uh, I say sometimes uh, to my class is that it's possible to be uh, 
a, a secular person of faith. And if you think about it that way, it might change your perspective on what you're doing, uh, not only as a citizen of the world, but also as a scholar of religion. Well, I'm so thankful for your time today. It's been really interesting to talk to you about this work. It, it's a challenging work, but I, I have to say that I really enjoyed it. And and I, I hope that some of our readers or our listeners will read it and enjoy it as well. Um, you also have a podcast. I want to make sure that there's a chance that you can you can uh, uh, advise everybody to visit. Uh, remind us again about the name of the podcast and where uh, folks can find that. So I am co-host of Straight White American Jesus, and you can find Straight White American Jesus on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, on Google, on most places uh, people get their podcasts. And you can find me on Twitter at Bradley Onishi. Um, and we do have a Facebook page for um, uh, for the podcast. It's called Straight White American Jesus, and it's pretty easy to find. Well, I'm so thankful for your time today. Have a great day. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I had a really great time talking with Brad. Brad and I went to graduate school together, and now he's at, at Skidmore. And And what's really funny is that the work that he's doing on philosophy of religion, I started when he was in the program with me, and we both took a, a class together um, from Thomas Carlson, who features prominently in the book uh, that Brad and I were kind of talking about. And Beyond that book, we were in Tom Carlson's class on Heidegger, trying to kind of understand these things together. And and in the interview, we talk about how it's really hard, even as a graduate school student, even when you have nothing else but to devote yourself entirely to Heidegger and to try to understand what he had to say about the philosophy of religion and what impact maybe his works had on religious studies – it's so hard. So not impenetrably hard, but close to impenetrable. Bree, do you have the experience that a lot of people do that some of this high continental theory that we could do Bataille and uh, Heidegger and uh, Merleau-Ponty and some of these big names that, that they're just too hard to kind of work with for for undergraduates or people in the general public? What should we do when we have, you know, maybe a, a landmark philosophical text and it's exceedingly challenging for readers? Well, I remember my first encounter uh, with Merleau-Ponty. It was actually um, in the third year of my undergrad which is the final year of our degree in Australia. And I remember just sitting there and thinking, God, I am thick. I just, it was just so dense and so amazing, but I really struggled with it. And I remember the way that we were sort of taught to engage with it was actually try and put it into practice, try and use Mm. a methodology that you can find in, in Merleau-Ponty's work and, see if you can actually put it into practice. And I personally found that really useful of instead of just sort of reading it and trying to just fully comprehend it, if you try and put it into practice, try and sort of see how it works in in some sort of study, then it actually will sort of come to life and it will have more of a sense of what it's trying to achieve. And I personally found that that quite useful, not to say that that would work for everybody. Um, but I would really like to to hear from our listeners about how they help undergrads and help even graduate students, you know, tackle the philosophy of religion. What pedagogies do you use? How do you engage with it in your classes? 
Um, Dave, do you have any sort of tips that, that you have to help students engage with this sort of material? shorter passages and close reading like it's Mm. all it's all for me it's all about can we try to really understand what the particular author was writing we'll use maybe a a, an instrumental concept if there's a really good one to kind of um to latch onto and then read as as short a section as you can possibly get where um it uh uh, is available to them. And, and then you go through the language and you talk about maybe some of the background of their secondary readings. But, but even that is, it can be a huge ask, right? Even a page or two of some of these really important philosophy of religion um, writers can be exceedingly challenging. So I, I too, like you would love to hear um, what the audience has uh, in their back pockets for when they need to to tackle these um, these big ideas, and if you enjoyed today's podcast, I know that you're you're thinking about these things because one of Brad's um, big suggestions in his book and in his work is that we think with these philosophy of religion rather than kind of using them um, for or against religion and try to kind of really think through them in practice, as you said, and that's absolutely the case here. Well, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, we have a really interesting roundtable that was recorded at the BASR. Uh, This is in the fall, and that's how long sometimes it takes us to get everything around. But uh, Chris Cotter spoke with Vivian Asmos and Tim Hutchings and Suzanne Owing, a a, a power trio. And they all spoke about media and the study of religion and um, about um, mediation and about uh, the news and about how uh, we use media in our teaching. And this has been a very consistent theme in the podcast and in the responses that we have for a long time. It's been something that um, Eileen Barker and David Gordon Wilson and Timu Tyra and uh, Paul Hope Chung uh, and Bridget Myers, so many people um, have been on the podcast to talk about this and we're delighted to to be able to continue those conversations. And so I guess until then, the only thing that's left to say is thanks for, thanks listening. for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.